We were children of the Silicon Revolution, an X-generation conscripted to fight the console and home computer wars. A product of an analog 70s childhood, we came of digital age in the 80s, believing we could affect the world eight bits at a time. Armed with joysticks, full-stroke keyboards, jolt cola, and MTV haircuts, we proceeded into the vertical blank. There, we stayed up late at night, devising incantations from D&D rulebooks and beginner all-purpose symbolic instruction code. Video games were the match and programming was the fuse as the infinite possibilities of the digital world exploded into the internet age to come. We are Generation Atari. You were just listening to Decathlon by Tony Longworth. We'll hear more of that at the end of the episode. Today we play the second half of our interview with Steve Golson from GCC. He details a fascinating story about how GCC created Miss Pac-Man and then started working for Atari. I just know you're going to love Steve Golson's storytelling, so let's get right into it. agreement, our development agreement was not with Atari, but was with Warner Communication. And that's pretty important, I think, when you, when, what, with what happened afterwards, right? So very quickly, yep. what, so what happened with, so Miss Pac-Man, Crazy Auto, was that what it was called? What was it, what was the, what was the version of Pac-Man called? So, so the kit for Pac-Man, um, at, at some point it got the name Crazy Auto. And none of us have been able to remember why that came about. Um, but it was called Crazy Auto. We had a, uh, one of our friends from MIT, um, his older sister um, named uh, Patty Goodson was a musician. She was a professional musician living in New York City. And so, uh, you know, artistic, creative type. And we um, asked her to help us out with some of the design, the, the uh, artwork and character design and whatnot. And I think that's where the name Crazy Auto came from, was okay. from Patty. But she does not remember. So truly, we do not. We do not know. But anyway, the name Crazy Auto came up. And so it was a kit for Pac-Man. And some of what we learned from the Atari lawsuit, which was, okay, do not reuse any of the characters from the initial game. So change them a little bit. So we took Pac-Man and basically made it look like the Pac-Man character from the side of the Pac-Man cabinet. You ever look at the side of a Pac-Man cabinet, it's got this character, Pac-Man, with legs and blue eyes and this sort of this animated thing. He's running. 
yeah, he's running. And so that was crazy Otto. And it had this 3D sort of look where Otto would look left and right and he would look away from you and look towards you and he had feet and he walked around the maze. So the, the basic gameplay of it's a maze, there's dots, you eat the dots, there's power pellets. Um, that basic gameplay was still there, but there was an enormous amount of it that changed. The mazes were different, the colors were different, the music was different. The bonus fruit moved around the maze. It didn't stay in one spot. It moved right. around the maze. So Crazy yeah. Crazy Auto is basically identical to what became Ms. Pac-Man. There so are is, is that Bally that you guys work? Not Namco, right? I mean, Namco owned Pac-Pac-Man. Bally was distributing it in in the in the USA. Bally Midway had the rights to Pac-Man in the uh, Western Hemisphere. Okay. I, I think it was all Western Hemisphere. It might might have been just can, Canada, uh, Canada and U.S. Um, so, so it was Midway, which was owned by Bally. And so, yeah, it was developed by Namco. But Namco had a number of games that in the U.S. came out through Midway. Right. So, so we had worked on this kit. And the whole time we're doing the lawsuit, we're still working on this Pac-Man kit. And uh, by early October... We're we're basically done with the Pac-Man kit. Wow! And by early October, the lawsuit is done too, because at this point we're busy negotiating a deal with Atari. Right. And one of the terms in the deal with Atari, or Warner actually, again, was Atari was okay. You're not doing any more of these kits, right? <laughs> They, they really want that idea to stop, right? No more kits, right? You're going to do games for us, and that's that. And we said, well, okay, but look, we've got this kit that we've been working on since the beginning of June, and we'd like to be able to take it to market. And, you know, this is all totally independent of working for Atari. We had this kit, and it's not even for an Atari game, so we want to be able to sell it. So... Atari says, okay, we will let you sell enhancement kits if you get permission from the original owner okay. of the game. And Atari's thinking, no one's going to do that. <laughs> right? And if they do, fine. And, and we were like, okay, sure, great. You know, gives us a chance. Great. So, so we have this crazy auto kit and... Um, we want to show it off to to Bally, to 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 the people at Midway. So so this is a this is just an amazing story here. So so think about Dave Morofsky, who's the president of Midway, right? He has the most popular game in the United States right now, bar none. He is just selling them unbelievably. He's got his factory cranking out Pac-Man games. And he's got a real problem because there's all sorts of pirates out there who have pirated his game. There are people selling duplicate Pac-Man games, yes. right? Um, maybe with a slight change to the software a little bit, there's people selling Pac-Man t-shirts, counterfeited. and So he's in court all the time with these copyright and trademark infringement cases trying to get oh you're not allowed to sell that t-shirt and you're not allowed to sell that trash can and all this right trying to protect his amazing 
item that he owns, which yeah. is Pac-Man in the U.S. And he gets this phone call, right? Kevin Curran calls up Dave Moromsky. says, Dave, <laughs> we have a kit. I'm the president of General Computer. We have a kit for Pac-Man and we're about to bring it out. We're gonna start selling this kit like a week from now. Dave's like, uh-huh. <laughs> Kevin's like, you might have heard about the lawsuit we had with Atari. This was a big deal. It was in all the trade news, right? right? That Atari had sued General Computer. Dave's like, yep. And Kevin said, you might have seen that Atari dropped their lawsuit. Dave's like, yep, I saw that. Kevin <laughs> is saying, and Kevin's saying, we don't want to have to take you to court too. <laughs> Right. So let's just sit down and talk about any problems you might have with this. And Dave thinks this is just the most stand up thing he has heard in a while. Right. Somebody who calls him up ahead of time and says, let's avoid going to court. Shall we? Let's just sit down and chat about this. And so he says, hey, well, when you're in Chicago, stop by. Kevin's like, well, turns out we're going to be in Chicago and we'll we'll come in. So. If I got the dates right, October 9th, Doug and Kevin are in Chicago because they're signing the Atari deal. <laughs> All right. The next day, they go and visit Midway, right? Oh, yeah, we happen to be in town. No one knows about our Atari deal, right? It's secret. All people know about is that Atari has dropped their lawsuit and that here's these GCC guys. They're, they're still doing stuff. Okay. So, so Doug and Kevin head over there. I fly in that day. So actually three of us went in because I brought the kit, right? I actually had the kit. Uh, uh, so the three of us drive into Midway and meet with Stan Jaraki, who was the head of marketing, I think was his title at, uh, at, at Midway. And, you know, we have this, have this little chat about, hey, how are you guys doing? Yeah, we, we've got this kit and you know, we'll show it to you. And so, okay, well, um, you know. Oh, and they took us on a little tour of their factory and showed us, well, you know, we've got a new game coming out. We're real proud of this new game, Bosconians. Oh, well, by the way, one of my favorite games, but. but there you go. So he's like, hey, this is our, you know, we're about to bring out this new game, Bosconians. We're real excited about that. Like, okay, good job. All right, thanks. So, um, and they went and got a. Not a big seller, by, by the way, but. Not a big seller, no, afraid not. So, so we said, um, we'll show this kit to you. Steve here has got it in his briefcase and he'll, he'll, he'll install it in one of your games. So they go, okay. So they go and they pull a Pac-Man game fresh off the assembly line, right? Bring it off the assembly line, put it in a conference room and stick me in there with my briefcase and my tools. It's like, okay, Steve, you install it. And Kevin and Doug and Stan hang out in Stan's office. No pressure here to get it done, right? Oh, you want to hear the story, do you? <laughs> so, so Steve, me, thinking that this is fresh off the assembly line. There's no need for me to test it. I'm just going to rip it apart and plug my kit in and power it up. So that's what I do. So I, I rip it apart. You know, I plug in my kit and I unplug the ROMs and I plug in the ROMs and I plug in my kit and it's sort of, it's not final product, right? It's kind of hacked together and I plug it in, boom, and I power the thing up dead. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, what's wrong? Is the kit, is there something wrong? What's happened? And I, and I, and, and so I'm like, okay, 
take the kit out and make sure that at least it works as packed. They take the kit out, put everything back in. I mean, this requires unplugging the microprocessor. There's all kinds of bend a pin, you could crack trash it and so so I put it all back together I put it back basically like like it just came off the the, the production floor powered up dead I'm like okay either I killed it or it was dead coming into production <laughs> Kevin and Doug say they're like making small talk with Stan and wondering what the heck is going on with Steve and I finally come in and I say look there's a problem with your cabinet I think bring me another one like, oh, okay. You know, this guy is going through these. So they bring in a second cabinet. This time I turn it on first. Oh, works fine. Like, okay. You know, plug in the kit. Great. Crazy auto comes up. It's working fine. They bring one of their guys in, one of their, their expert players. I mean, you can imagine at the Pac-Man production facility, uh, in Midway's factory, they've got some really good Pac-Man players. Some, some QA guys who know who know how to play the game. Yes, and so they bring in so they bring in this guy, and he sort of plays the crazy auto kit, and he's like, "Oh, yeah, this is kind of cool. Yeah, this is kind of fun. This looks good." So obviously, we're for real. We've got this thing. It's done. It's ready to go. And um, so Stan's like, "Very interesting. Okay, well, we'll you know we'll think. Hey." Have you thought about maybe licensing this? Oh, gee, didn't think about that. Oh, sure, Stan, we'd be happy to talk to you about that. Right, licensing it to you. So this is mid-October of 81, right? Pac-Man production is starting to ramp off. They have, the they're gonna end up making 96,000 Pac-Man cabinets in 1981. Now, Midway would dearly love what's the next big game from Namco. They really need another big game to, to, to keep producing, right? And, um, and they hadn't gotten one from Namco, at least not one that they thought was going to be a big winner. And so they're like, was well, this one from Namco or was it something that they were developing themselves? Uh, no, it came in from uh, Namco, I think. Okay. There were some games being developed by Midway themselves, but almost everything they were getting was coming in from, uh, from they were licensing from other people, from Namco and others, I believe. So, so Midway is, starts like, well, okay, gee, let's, let's talk about this. So Doug and me and Kevin get on a plane and fly back to Boston and, um, you know, handshakes all around. Wow, all happy. This is wonderful. Thank you very much. And... Oh, they gave us some sweat. They gave us a, a Pac-Man necktie. <laughs> I still have my Pac-Man necktie that I got from Stan Jaraki. Still, I'm very proud of that. Yes. And so we go. And so, so we start negotiating with with um, Midway, right? And I think Midway is thinking, "Hey, these guys are going to do. This is just the first game. These guys are going to do more stuff." Right. They don't know about Atari. This is a one-off thing, and they just don't know it yet. And so um, by end of October, we, we were done negotiating and we signed a deal with, uh, with, with Midway, with Bally Midway. So one of the things they asked was, okay, we want to put three of them out on test. And so I, so I was the hardware guy and I, they sent me three Pac-Man boards and I hand wire wrapped three crazy autos and we kept one and put it on test and two of them went off to midway and they put them on test 
uh, both in Chicago, I think, to see how it would uh, how it would do. And they got pretty good results from Crazy Auto when it was out on test. And they said, oh, this is great. Okay, you know, this, this game's got legs, so to speak. So to speak, yeah. Yeah. And, um, and so that's what, uh, um, and, and, and so there in late October, because it's now owned by Midway, Midway's bringing it out. Well, guess what? We can make it Pac-Man again. All the changes we made because of trademark issues, uh, we can make it Pac-Man. And so what's the name of the game going to be? Oh, well, let's call it Super Pac-Man. Okay. So we make that change and we're going to make it Super Pac-Man. And um, all in the span of just a few weeks here in, in October, uh, November, um, it, uh, it goes through a bunch of different name changes. And the big change was... So you have to remember, or of course you wouldn't remember because no one ever saw it, but no. Crazy Auto had cutscenes, had these little cartoons in between the racks, which Pac-Man had. Pac-Man had cutscenes also. And so we put in our own. So we put in these little cartoons and it was a, it was a boy meets girl love story. So Crazy Auto, obviously he's male, right? Otto. Right. And so the very first cutscene is... There's two characters and they meet and they fall in love because a little heart, they, you know, they sure. bump into each other and the little heart appears. Oh, obviously they fell in love, right? And then the second cut scene, they chase each other around. And then the third cut scene, they have a baby. The stork flies over and drops a little baby. And so the two Crazy Auto characters, so there was the original Crazy Auto yellow colored and then all we did was change the color and so the red one was obviously the female so the idea of a female character was already in crazy auto because the cut scene showed the female character show up and and fall in love and have a baby right so i remember this very clearly i got a phone call i answered the phone <laughs> and it's stan jiraki on the phone I like, stan what do you need it's like well hey we've been thinking we want to make the female character the main character of the game. It's not Super Pac-Man anymore, right? We'll call it Pac-Woman. Like, really? That's a bad <laughs> Really, Stan? You know, aren't you, aren't you going to, like, uh, uh, alienate all, the, all the, the, the teenage boys who are playing the games in the arcades? No, Stan is like, no, this is going to be great because Pac-Man, lots of women play Pac-Man. And, you know, we're like, okay, sure, all right, makes sense, makes sense. So we made the change and Stan is like, yeah, we want it to have red hair and a bow and, and animate it. And we're like, yeah, sure, fine, okay. So we, we make these changes to the character and then fairly quickly it was like, no, 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 not Pac-Woman, Miss Pac-Man. Right. M-I-S-S Pac-Man. Or maybe it was Miss Pac-Man and then Pac-Woman, I don't remember. No, Pac-Woman was first and then it was Miss M-I-S-S, Miss Pac-Man. And uh, that lasted for about a week until someone remembered she had a baby. And they would not want an unmarried pack creature to have a child. That would, oh, out of wedlock, pack baby. Oh, that's terrible. No. So that's Ms. M-S Pac-Man. Right. And that was the final. That was the final. That's fantastic. Uh, and that was, and that, and, 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 off, off it went. And so by late November, 
it's Ms. Pac-Man. And uh, there were still a few bug fixes to be made after that uh, into January, but by January it was, uh, uh, it was all done. From the June 1982 issue of Electronic Games, this is what they had to say about Ms. Pac-Man. Ms. Pac-Man. A maze game quite similar to the original, with some vital variations. For one thing, our gobbler is a goblet, a Miss Pac-Man if you please. She's a darling shade of pink and wears a bow atop her head. Miss Pac-Man offers a quartet of mazes and keeps players from becoming either bored or overly familiar with the labyrinth. Moreover, the action of the goblins is so random, development of patterns becomes a virtual impossibility. From the throngs of players huddling around the available machines in the New York City arcades, it looks as if the DeStaff Gobbler may wind up as big a hit as her male counterpart. In release less than two weeks, as this column is written, Miss Pac-Man is already in the top 10 list in Play Meter magazine. Among the other graphic goodies in this delightful video game is a scene in which a stork appears on screen carrying a tiny pink bundle of hungry joy a tiny squeaking pack baby do you know if miss pac-man was actually more popular than pac-man or oh yeah it was a bigger build was it bigger oh yeah uh well okay pac-man in the u.s pac-man in the u.s i believe was ninety-six thousand cabinet miss pac-man i believe was 114,000. wow now Pac-Man, which I believe is the number one build of any arcade game ever in the U.S. Now, um, that's pretty good. Pac-Man, there may have been more Pac-Man cabinets if you include the, the all the pirated ones. <laughs> okay. Now, because who knows how many of those were came in the pirated ones if you count those. Because Pac-Man, Ms. Pac-Man, because it had a very clever software protection circuit that prevented it from being cloned. Right. So it was about six months before people had figured out how to clone Ms. Pac-Man. And by that time, the market was just saturated. And that was so I, right? Just fend them off long enough. So that's, yes, that's right. Make it difficult enough that the simple clone people with with low sophistication would not be able to understand it and do it. Right. And that and that we were we were successful. And so it wasn't cloned until July. It was like the first time I saw one oh. uh, and was able to take it apart. So good for us. And that I think that helped a, a, a tremendous amount at the increasing the build numbers for Ms. Pac-Man. That's amazing. And I think, frankly, the gameplay was better. It was way better. You, you had all these people who were who had played Pac-Man and loved Pac-Man, and it just got too easy because if you knew the patterns, you'd play forever. But here, Ms. Pac-Man comes along, and it's got different mazes, and it's random and truly random behavior of the monsters. So you could use your same the, the same game knowledge that you already had and play this new game and so you it immediately felt familiar right. and yet was very challenging and so the players loved it yeah it's, a, it's so a, uh, yeah I, I loved it way more than pac-man myself so you know 114,000 units at 2500 bucks retail so that's a quarter billion dollars in sales did you guys get a piece of that 
Oh yeah, yeah. So we our our deal was we were paid a certain amount per kit, a, a, a flat amount, if it was sold as a kit, and if it was sold as a new game. You guys did okay. We did very okay. <laughs> um, and basically, I think it, looking at the numbers, I think we got about the same royalty that Namco got. Wow. From because what Midway did was they told Namco. Namco knew about this. Namco knew all about Ms. Pac-Man and uh, because they had to get permission. Midway had to get permission from Namco and Namco actually signed off on the the character design for the female Pac-Man. You you see a lot of people talking about how Namco did not know about it. That is not true. Namco absolutely knew about it. Uh, Nakamura-san knew about the character and signed off on it. So uh, Midway says to to uh, Namco, because basically from Midway's point of view, this was designed as a kit, right? We designed, I designed it, I was the hardware guy, designed it as a kit that would plug onto an existing Pac-Man cabinet. So that's how they built it. It's basically a Pac-Man circuit board with this little second board attached and plugged into That's it. That's amazing. All right. Now, we talked right away. We said, well, you know what? We can redesign the circuit board to put it all on one board and that would make it cheaper and easier and whatnot. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, but we'll just go into production like this. So I think from Midway's point of view, they were like, look, it's just another Pac-Man cabinet and we'll pay Namco the same royalty as if it was a Pac-Man cabinet. It's got the Pac-Man ROMs. Right. It's got... All the pack, right? And and we'll pay Namco what they were getting before, just like another Pac-Man cabinet. And then we'll play GCC. So we're basically doubling the royalty they're paying out. Like, fine. So what? Right? So I think that's... Is the biggest selling arcade game ever that we know of has your hardware design in it piggybacked on the back of Pac-Man boards. Yes, biggest sale in the U.S. I said, ladies and gentlemen, I present to you Steve Golson, Mr. Miss Pac-Man. Oh, okay, I'm honored. But there was lots of us, so <laughs> I don't want to take all the credit. The software design, Doug McRae, Chris Rode, Phil Carrot, who was a summer guy who came in and worked for us, Mike Horowitz, Kevin Curran helped a little bit with the gameplay. John Tilko helped with gameplay, and they John and Doug and Kevin all did the business negotiation. I did all the hardware design, and uh, so yeah, it was a real, real team effort. So what was the first thing when you guys started with Atari? I know that you, you ended up making three coin ops, um, Food Fight, Quantum, and then I think Nightmare, which never got produced. Was there anything else? Like, like how did that, it seemed like you were going strong. What, what did you run into at Atari that, you know, what, what happened when you first started working for them? Well, the, the deal we had with Atari was basically they were going to pay us, the deal was they were going to pay us $50,000 a month for two years. And I, I think th- that some people in Atari thought we were just going to take the money and never do anything like for you were them. being paid to not work basically. yeah right we were being paid to just please stop making that stupid kit right, right. <laughs> and when we always looked at it as no way man we're going to start making content for these people and and i think that the manny gerard and skip paul and the Hyatt people they were very impressed with us technically and were 
thought we could do amazing things for Atari. So the deal was we were going to get paid X amount a month. And then if we provided a product that Atari took, they had first refusal was the way it worked. Then we would uh, get a royalty on it. Right. So, uh, so we immediately, and we were thinking it's going to be coin-op games. So we immediately start working on coin-op games. And one of the first games we worked on was a game called Fireman. And it was sort of like Crazy Climber, if you've ever played Crazy yeah. Climber. So there's a building and it catches fire and you're the fireman and you have to climb up and put the fire out. And so, so there were complete new game ideas that we were working on for Atari. Sure. So that's one thing that started. Another thing that started was we started doing our own hardware development. So we did not want to use the Atari coin-op hardware. We wanted our own hardware, which would be much more sophisticated, which would use uh, the 68,000 microprocessor because we could program in a high-level language and we, could, we wanted to do all these much more sophisticated things, which I think the Atari engineers would love to do also but they were never allowed to because it was too expensive. Yeah, and it would get, yeah they would be, you know, they could, well, look guys, come on, keep using that 8-bit processor, it'll be cheaper. But yeah. we had this was freedom. A, was Atari's problem the whole time was not advancing their hardware because uh, because they want to keep the cost down or keep milking what they had, I guess. And I, and I think that not having non-engineers making the business decisions, or, or let's say people with business knowledge, but not so much engineering knowledge, yeah, making these trade-offs. Now, at GCC, it was a very flat structure. We had Kevin and Doug as partners at the top, and you had everybody else working for them. So all we had to do was convince Kevin and Doug, and these are MIT students, right? <laughs> these are fellow engineers. So if you make an engineering pitch and say, this is the best way to do it, and they would say, you're right, this is the best way to do it, end of story, you were done. And then we could force Warner and Atari to take it because it would be done. Right. And Doug and Kevin would talk to Manny Gerard at Warner and say, this is the best way to do it. And Warner would tell Atari, this is the way to do it. Did you guys have designs that you made for coin-op games? Did you have to, did the, did the coin-op division at Atari have to accept them? Did you have a problem with them accepting them or, or, or even breaking in with that, with those guys? Yes and no. I think there was a, a little bit of jealousy and conflict with the designers at Atari, but this was part of us keeping this incredibly low profile and just having nothing at all to do with those guys. Right. So who we really dealt with were the manufacturing people. Okay. So the manufacturing people, it was just to them, it was just like, oh, we get a game from Namco and, and, and we slap an Atari name on it and, and ship it out, you know, translate the manual and ship it out. And so they were used to dealing with designs like that. So from their point of view, it's the same sort of thing. Oh, here's this, here's this ar arcade game. Okay. It's coming from these people in, in, in Massachusetts. Oh, it's nice. They speak English. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. So the manufacturing people, and they had very... Oh, well, here's our manufacturing guidelines, right? The circuit board needs to be this big and you have to have this and we need this type of testing routine. And we're like, great, great. We're happy to deal with the manufacturing people. And so we had a very good relationship with them and uh, they want things designed a certain way to manufacture it. No problem. We'll do it. 
And I think they were very happy with us because we responded so quickly. If they wanted something done, like, oh, that, that makes sense. Great. We'll do it. Boom. And we could turn it around instantly. I think when they had to deal with the Japanese, it was much more difficult because from the Japanese point of view, from Namco's point of view, this game is done, right? We're producing it in, in Japan. We don't need to change anything. It's, it's perfectly fine. And so you have a big cultural issue there. And with us, we didn't care. We're like, fine. You want it this way? Great. We'll change it. No problem. <laughs> so we had a whole episode on Food Fight that we did, you know. Yes. Um, but we didn't really get into anything else. So, so you, you know, Food Fight was your first game that you guys did? So it was one. So very early on, if you look at, so this is early 1982. We're working on Firemen. We're working on Food Fight. We're working on a game called Molecular Magic which is what quantum started out as. Now that's not a hack of asteroids, right? That you're using, you, you got access to the actual, the, the color. Um, the color vector, yes. And we started, uh, the initial development was done on one of the Atari machines. I can't remember which of the color vector machines they had but very quickly developed our own hardware and our own, uh, one of our engineers, a guy named Art Ng, did the quantum hardware. And he did this just phenomenal job of marrying the 68,000 and the stay machine hardware to do all the vector graphics and the vector fill. Cause it does this really cool thing where it will do this little raster thing to like fill in one of the characters. Uh, so it's not just wireframe. It, it it does little little pieces of raster to do a solid circle, for example. Beautiful, amazing game. I mean, do you do you know what happened to it? Because it, I think I played it once. I think I played it in the arcade once, but I'm 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 got to say I probably played it at some you know vintage you know video game yeah. thing. It, it but once when I played it, it is amazing. So you know, did it come out too? What do you think? What happened to Quantum? I think it was expensive. Yeah. Um, I think that the color vector games were, were finicky and prone to problems and repair issues. And so, and, and maybe it was just too late at that point. Yeah. Uh, so, so I mean, it's a beautiful game. It's yeah, it's a beautiful game. It did not, if you think about the game mechanics, it was completely unique. So it's not like, oh yeah, fire thrust left, right. It's about okay. 30 years before it's time is what it was. It could be. You could you could look at it that way. So 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 people who loved it, I mean it was this wonderful thing. And as you said, it had this very beautiful graphics to it. And the uh, the programmer, um, Betty Ryan, uh, did did all the software, basically all the software for it, I think. And uh, she may have had some help with uh, 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 sounds, I think sound development came from some of our music people, uh, but basically it was all Betty. Just did a beautiful job of the, yeah. on the gameplay. Did she do anything else for GCC? Any other games? I believe she worked on uh, some of the uh, um, the home games also. Once Quantum was done, I think she worked on uh, uh, some of the VCS games. According to AtariWomen.org, Betty Ryan, or Betty Ryan Tilko, was one of the first women game developers at GCC. She created the Atari Quantum Arcade game and several Atari home computer games. This is what it says. Betty started in January 1982 as the ninth employee and first woman game developer at GCC. The first game she programmed was Atari's Quantum Arcade game. 
After Quantum, Betty worked on Atari home games for the 2600, 5200, and 7800, including Pole Position, Dig Dug, Atari Lab, and GCC's version of Millipede. You can read a lot more about Betty and other Atari women programmers at atariwomen.org, but that was just a snippet of what they say about Betty and how she worked at GCC and on Quantum. I don't recall which one. You know, you guys did a ton of Atari VCS games. Did you guys do any 5200 or was it mostly 20? Oh, yes. We did 5200. We did uh, uh, computer 400, 800 games. A few of those. Yes. So so finding the credits for stuff that GCC worked on is very difficult to find out who worked on them. And there's very hard, right? You'll see like done a GCC, like nobody knows. Do you know? I could could dig it out. We had a... a, uh, uh, company newsletter that we put out every week or so. Oh, that's amazing. And it, it would have a, uh, and I have almost a complete set of that newsletter. Uh, it, it was called called Erte, and it's on my list of things to do is <laughs> to scan it, you know, and have the PDFs and, because uh, it would be, I, I'm sure you, you, you fans would have an amazing time with it because number one, it tells you who's working on what. It gives you a complete right? timeline of things that happen, right? Ultimately. Yeah, of who's working on what and what's going on in the industry, what's going on at Atari. Um, you know, little notes. Oh, my God, it'd be fantastic. Doug just came back from Atari and here's what they had to say. And so, you know, things like yeah, that. It's a, it's a whole alternative history that, that people have not seen before. Right. Well, <laughs> and not really alternative history as it as it is, okay, this is the history, but yeah. there's aspects of it that, oh, really? At that yeah. point in time, they thought, what was going to happen? Oh, that was dumb. Why did they think that? You know, That's cool. Or, or that was a great idea. Why did they change their mind? So, 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 you're, so, so back to your your original question of what other coin op things did we yes. did we do we had an actual i gave a presentation last year at uh, retro world in um, connecticut and that forced they wanted to a, a presentation on coin op at a at gcc and i went back through all of my oh, wow. newsletters and put together a presentation about it. And there were uh, a a whole bunch of arcade projects that we had ongoing. And the the only ones that made it to production or close to production were the ones that, so so Food Fight and Quantum, Nightmare was basically on test. So it was very close to production, which is why it's available today because uh, it got saved out of a dumpster, right? Right. the, the, The board, the ROMs were at Atari. And then there were the games we did for Midway. So Ms. Pac-Man and then Junior Pac. Oh, oh, that's right. We did for, eventually did that for Midway. Um, but there was a whole, a whole boatload of things that we worked on. And so I'm just looking through my name here. Um, Rock Slide, that was another one that got very close to production, but it did not test very well. So um, we decided to move on from that one. Game called Clone, a game called Crystal Castle, not the Atari Crystal Castle. It was, we came up with the same name for a completely different game. And so I was like, oh, so it got renamed to Starship Raider, a game called White Rabbit, which we nicknamed Rabbitron because it was sort of like Robotron gameplay. Yes. But it was it was little rabbits that flew around the screen and you ate carrots and their the ears would spin to fly them around. Oh, that's and, cool. Yeah, Rabbitron. Uh, then a, a game called Motocross, which was going to be a motorcycle driving game. You see, Warner had the rights to Road Warrior. Oh, man. Right? Warner had the rights to all of these titles. Can you come up with a game? 
that goes with the title. And so Road Warrior, the idea of Road Warrior riding a motorcycle through the the hellish wasteland of oh, Road yeah. Warrior. So that was a that was a thought. So we worked on that for a while. Oh, here's a, um, a Warner owned Roadrunner. Yes, that's right. And so oh, let's come up with a Roadrunner game. Except that the only gameplay you can come up with is that you're the coyote. <laughs> and you're trying to catch the roadrunner, right? And and that coyote always loses. So he's not, win. <laughs> yeah, he's not the character. So so we had all this Warner stuff we tried to do. And uh, one last one, uh, there was a game called Laser Rail, which got pretty far in in development, and it was going to be an astonishing game. It really? was going to be a uh, laser disc game. Oh, cool! And it was going to have very high resolution computer-generated graphics on the Laserdisc. So the entire background was going to come off the Laserdisc but look like it was computer-generated on the fly. Uh-huh. And then you would overlay on the top of it the, the gameplay. Uh, so we were talking with the various movie computer effects houses about creating the computer graphics that we needed in order to do laser rail. That would have been a, a, an amazing game. Oh. Now, perhaps it would have been too expensive and yeah, it looks cool, but it's not good gameplay. I think it would have been an amazing gameplay. I can show you all the storyboards and you oh, were like, bad. you would look at it and go, I really want to play that game. <laughs> and it didn't happen. You guys went and did VCS and 5200, 8-bit and 7800. How many of those games did you make? Because again, there's there's so many arcade conversions that came out that apparently are attributed to GCC. Um, I can I can give you the list. I, it, it's about 70. There's like about 70 titles, and that was in the span of you know a year and a half. And did right. you do the? Did you start programming at that time, or are you still doing your hardware design? I mean, no, I was just a hardware guy. Yeah. So, so I worked on I worked on the hardware uh, the the arcade game hardware that for example went into Food Fight the graphics hardware for that I worked on that I worked on some math DSP stuff that we were going to do and then when seventy eight hundred started up and before seventy eight hundred we had a project called Spring that was going to require a whole bunch of custom chip stuff and I was working on that and then I was flat out on seventy eight hundred. Spring was an arcade was an arcade game or a or another another piece of hardware. Spring was a home computer. Oh, it was. Uh, Spring was a home computer that was going to oh you could play games on it also, right? But it was you know so maybe you had a stripped down version of it that would just be games, but basically it was it was very sophisticated graphics and sound and gameplay. Is this a 6800 based? Uh, uh, 68,000. 68,000 yeah. based, sorry. Well, actually, no, I'm sorry. Um, Spring was going to be 86 based because we oh. wanted it to be PC compatible. Oh, that's interesting. So, so we thought we could make it PC compatible and do all this cool graphics as well. Oh, that's that's neat. Was that an Atari project or something you guys were doing internally yourselves? Oh, everything was just us. And the, the idea was we're going to get it done and then we'll hand it to and Atari and say, this is yourself. done. Look what you get to build. So when it came from those arcade game conversions, did those come from, those are assignments from Atari? Or did you guys pick them up and say, 
we'll do Miss Pac-Man, we'll do, you know, Kangaroo, Moon Patrol, whichever ones you guys did. Those came from Atari. I mean, some of them, like Ms. Pac-Man, that was our game. So right. it's like, well, we're going to do it. No one else is going to do it. Did um, you, know, and, you remember, and, like, the, the Ms. Pac-Man for the Atari VCS is amazing compared to Pac-Man. Yes. Do you remember if that was a goal of your guys to make Ms. Pac-Man as close as possible to the arcade game, to, to best the version of Pac-Man that came out for the VCS? Oh, Absolutely. I mean, we saw Pac-Man as it was such a disaster. The gameplay was so different from the arcade. Right. And so, and uh, uh, Doug McRae did some of the work for VCS Ms. Pac-Man, and he had worked on the arcade, of course. Right. So, um, yeah, there was an intense desire to get the gameplay, the sounds, everything as close to arcade as possible. And one of the big ways we were able to do that was by using twice as much ROM as Pac-Man. Right. And, and I think that was, again, part of what we were able to do being insulated from the Atari dysfunctional management is that if the game needed more ROM, well, then we used more ROM. And you did it. And if it was more expensive, well, then it's more expensive. You know, deal with it, guys. Whereas I think that was part of the limitation put on the Pac-Man development. 2600 Pac-Man is like, okay, it's got to be 2K bytes. Yeah. Really? And, um, and I did the so best I could with 2K bytes, but if you give them 4K, then look at what you're able to do. Exactly. Yeah. It's not all about the programmer. It's all, it's about what, you know, no. the ability for you guys to be a little bit freer in what you're doing, somewhat disconnected from the, I guess, the politics that are going on. It sounds like a, like a, like a good environment to work in. Yes, it was, it was a in, incredibly productive and fun place to be. The 7800, which is my current yes. favorite thing to talk about. Yes. So how did, do you know how that came about? Was it another thing that you guys were designing on your own? You know, were you involved in the Maria, designing the Maria chip? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. How did 7800 come about? So if you go back to one of the first, the first work we did on VCS, and, and that's, that's a fun story for another day, Steve, yeah. is how did we get started doing VCS cards? Because we were doing coin-op, right? That was our thing, right from the start. Oh, we're doing coin-op. So how did we get started doing VCS? But we did in early, mid-82. And one of the first things that we pitched back to Atari in the fall of 82 was something we called the VCS Extended RAM Cartridge, mm -hmm. which was a, a gizmo that would give you lots more RAM for VCS games. And so we're already, even in 82, we're already thinking about what can we do to VCS to spiff it up? to make it, make it better, right? Right, because you've only and got then, 128 bytes to work with, and that's not a lot. As volatile memory, you can't even hold a map in there. There's not much you can do in 128 bytes. Oh, right? no, you're wrong. It's, it's, it's not 128 bytes. No, it's 1,024 bits. <laughs> you're right, you're right, I'm sorry. Okay, each bit is a precious little jewel that the software people would, would carefully hang on to right and so they didn't think about oh i need i need three bits and you would you know put it in this one location and do it and and uh bit eight was more precious or, or i'm sorry bit seven was more precious than the other bits because you could test it 
with branch if negative, and the other bits took a little bit more to look. So, so yeah, 1,024 bits. And you could get a couple more bits by writing to the I, unused I.O. ports. Okay. Anyway, so, so um, uh, yeah, so we were thinking about what could you do to VCS. Then in late 82, beginning of 83, we start this spring project, which is going to, because late 82, I took a class, got flown out to California to take a one-month class on integrated circuit design custom chip design from a company called VTI, VLSI Technology Incorporated. Right. And uh, and I came back with, oh, any we can all do chip design. We can do these amazing performance, amazing chips. What are we going to do? And that's where Spring arrived. And Spring was, oh, okay, we're going to do, here's this cool machine we're going to do, and it's going to need this graphics chip and this graphics chip and this sound chip, and we can do all these chips. And we start working on Spring. So, but then in early 83, this came from Doug or Doug and Kevin, I don't know. And maybe it was someone at Atari that was like, okay, that sounds wonderful, but what can you do now? Can you do something to help out VCS, please? Just something. And so early 83, we're like, yeah, okay, sure. Yeah, we'll hack something together for you. And then we'll get back to spring. And actually, our early one of our early code names was we'll call it the pre-spring fling, which was not an original name. That was the name of a semi-formal dance at MIT right. that happened in the winter time. So pre-spring. All right, we're going to do this. We'll just hack something out for you guys, and then we'll get back to spring, which is what we really wanted. Right. So so that gets us in spring of early '83. We start to okay, what what can we do? Oh, well, we'll take TIA and we'll, like, add more players and missiles. And then, oh, you know, oh, well. And so that's got got us thinking about what would we do. And then fairly quickly, it was, okay, we're not going to modify TIA. We'll just stick a TIA on the board. And that gets your compatibility. Because 2600 compatibility was one of the big things, right? right. This is going to be, this is what can we do to replace 2600? What can we do to enhance 2600 for now? until spring comes out. So it's like, oh, well, we'll get compatibility by just, we'll just put a TIA on the board and then we'll do our own graphics, whatever we want. And that gets our compatibility. Great, what can we do? And that led us very quickly to Maria and the, the Maria architecture and how that is gonna work. And so boom, off we go doing Maria. Uh, originally we called it 3600 was our code name for it. Right. And so all the development time, it was, this is the 3600. It's a 2600 goose a little bit. So the the Maria can get upwards, in, in some cases, like 20 sprites on a line, maybe more. What were you shooting for? Like, were you trying to replicate any type of game? That's, you know, look at like a Robotron or something and say, we, we have to be able to do this if this is going to work. Or, or what, what was your goal? Um... Was there I don't think we, we actually looked at it that way. I, I, I do not think we looked at it as, here's the type of game we want to do. What hardware will support it? It was the other way around. It's, this is the hardware we can do, and then we'll come up with games that will exploit it. And that's what we were already doing with VCS, right? I mean, VCS was fixed, and this, but we came up with very clever ways to make VCS do f- things it was never designed to do. Oh, yeah. And Galaxian is the best example of that. So you could have the Galaxian right. You guys box. did Galaxian, the VCS version of Galaxian, which, which some people think right. is better than the 8-bit version of Galaxian. It's, just a, it's a very good port. Extremely good port. And it does, it does clever things with the TIA that no one else had ever 
dreamt of before. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, so that's a, I'll tell you that story another time. Sure. Um, but uh, so, so what we wanted to do was use a completely different type of graphics architecture. Everything was this, what we call player missile graphics. Yeah, like hardware sprite based or something. Hardware right? sprites, right? That's what TIA was. That's what even 5200, the PAM 400, 800, it was just more sophisticated sprites, players and missiles. Oh, and then you got a background, a play field. And we said, no, let's do it the way arcade games do it. Arcade games had a line ram. So it was one scan line. There's no way you could do a complete bitmap, right? But it's one scan line bitmap. And that lets you put any number of sprites in there, however long you, you allow yourself to draw sprites. And well, however much time you have, that's how many you get on that line and then you go to the next line. So, so that's what we look like. So a double buffered scan line, uh, line ramp, and with a, with a DNA that would go off and fetch your sprites, although we called them stamps because we didn't, that's yeah. the name we came up with on our own. We didn't realize everyone else called them sprites. So we called them stamps. Stamps actually so, makes more sense if you think about it. It's exactly what yeah. it sort of did to us when back when we were doing Pac-Man, we're like, what do you call this thing that gets moved around the screen? It looks sort of like a little stamp <laughs> overlaid over the background, okay, stamp. So that was our idea for Maria, was we'll do it the way the arcade games do it. You could do a little back of the envelope sketch and realize that, wow, we'll be able to display a whole boatload of stuff on the yeah. screen. And as you say, that makes you, gee, we'll be able to do things like Robotron. And, and uh, if you think about VCS and the TIA, what games did they have in mind when they designed it? They were thinking about tank, right? Pong. Pong, right? You have a paddle and you have a ball, or you have tank. You have two tanks and each of them have one thing that they've shot. And so the player missile yeah. fits. Or you've got video Olympics where you've got several copies of the same sprites and they move up and down and, they're, and, and, they, and yeah. that functionality exists in the TIA as well. But it's yeah. very specific, almost like it was built for like four different games. Yeah. Right, which was, okay, great, that's fine. And you, you designed it and you built those games and that was fine. And then people figured out how to make TIAA do astonishing things. Right. The designers never imagined. And so for Maria, you know, we thought, okay, we'll do this graphics technique that's taken from CoinOp. We will expand the cartridge connector so that you can expand the... By, by putting more stuff out on the cartridge if you want, and off you go. And we had all sorts of things planned for 7800. We had home computer. It was going to be able to use all the existing Atari peripherals and have a home computer keyboard and um, video disk interface and just all kinds of cool stuff that was going to be 7800. High score cartridge, which was amazing. Yes. Some of those things are the, the future, right? I mean, the ability to yeah. see the game is like what brought everything back again, you know, a few yeah. years later. Do you know what happened? Yes, <laughs> I can tell you. So, so 7800 originally, when we started April, April of 1983, March 83, we start on the 3600 project and the Maria chip. And we think we're going to have this done by summer. It'll be ready for Christmas 83. <laughs> wow. Right. 
we are the pros in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and we can just crank this thing out and Atari manufacturing had better keep up. So we, we dive into this thing. We, we get our chip out the door in record time. We get the parts back. They work almost perfectly. And we realize that the architecture has a fatal flaw. Oh. Um, it can display enormous amounts of stuff, but it requires too much of the processor to move everything around. So we need to enhance it a little bit. And so that starts the Maria 2 project. Okay, we'll get this done. What's this going to take us? Six or eight weeks, we'll get this new chip done. So by summertime, pretty much it's clear we're not going to be ready for Christmas 83. Oh, that's too bad. And it's all about Christmas, right? It's all about Christmas sales. But we're getting very excited about this, and the Atari people are getting very excited about it. So Christmas 84 is the plan. I, we have notes from a meeting in November of 83 with people at Atari and where we show off the 3600 and they are just gobsmacked. They are extremely excited about it. They love the 2600 compatibility. Of course they do. Particularly the international people because they never got the 5200. Right? 5200 was only in the US. There was never a PAL version. There was never an international version. And so we said, oh yeah, we're gonna get a PAL version of this out. Well, no problem. <laughs> They're PAL cartridges, yeah, great, no sure. problem. They're excited. Um, they put it up as part of this meeting. They put it up side to side with 5200 and everyone agreed, yeah, yours is better than 5200. Way better. But. Their plan was still to sell 5200 as the high-end machine. And they were going to dream up some new feature to add to 5200 so that it could still be above 3600. Or they were, they were thinking of ways that we could cut back on the 3600 capabilities so that it wouldn't look... And we were like, sorry, wrong. That is the worst idea ever. <laughs> wrong. Not going to happen. Oh, okay. All right. So... But they still were thinking 5200 is still be in the market. 3600 replaces 2600. And that's the end of 83. And so May of 84, everything basically is done. You have to be done by that early in order to ramp up your production to be ready for Christmas sales, which have to be in the stores by what? September, yeah. you know, October. So May of 84 is the huge unveiling of 7800 and 14 cartridges, high score cart. They talk about the home computer, all of this stuff for Christmas. They tell the prices, everything, all of it came from GCC, all of it. From the September 1984 issue of Electronic Games in an article about the Atari 7800, the 7800's biggest bragging point is its new Maria graphics chip. All this 48-pin IC with its 24,000 individual transistors does is totally replace player missile graphics, the system for producing computer visuals used in all previous Atari hardware. Remember when player missile graphics represented the state of the art? Forget it. The Maria chip unchanged designers by removing most, if not all, of the limitations associated with putting images on the computer gaming screen. The Maria chip makes it possible for 7800 cartridges, unlike programs for older systems, to move any number of objects of any size in any combination of directions on screen simultaneously. 
to put this new advance in proper electronic gaming perspective, the 7800 edition of Robotron has an upper level playfield with more than 70 crazed robots zipping all over the screen at the same time. Another indication of the 7800's graphics power, the mounted hero in the 7800 version of Joust is a figure composed of 10 different colors. Not only does the 7800 have visuals which outshine any other video game, but its graphics are also superior to all computers currently on the market selling under $1,000. Gamers told Atari researchers that the graphics of the 7800 are up to 50% better than those for other systems. Whatever the actual margin, there's little question that the Pro System sets a new standard of excellence. So that was going to be Christmas of 84? That was going to be the future, right? Yeah. Yeah, that was going to be Christmas as 84. And then July 1st, it all gets sold to Jack. Yeah. So everything gets sold to Jack and we sit down. GCC sits down with Jack, right? Jack, what do you want to do? Jack says, ah, we're going to sell 100,000 7800s for Christmas 84. Great, great, Jack. Sounds good. You know, that was sort of the Atari plan, actually, also, right. to have that many done for Christmas. But Jack says, yeah, we're going to sell them for 50 bucks. <laughs> Now, original, the original plan was $150. Yeah. Okay. Of which GCC, we're going to get a cut, right? Right. Royalty. And carts, oh, the cartridges are going to retail for like $10 to $15, which was half of the original prices, right? This is, this is Jack's thing, right? You make it incredibly cheap. You sell boatloads of them. And, uh, oh, and he was going to sell a car. He was going to keep selling the 2600. He was going to have a cost-reduced 2600 selling for 40 bucks. Wow. Okay. This is Jack. This is his idea, right? And we're just like, Jack, well, you know, that's not that's not a lot of money. Where's the where's the money for GCC? Jack's <laughs> like, you don't get any, right? You know, there's only enough money for me, Jack says. And so GCC were like, no, we're not going along with this. And Jack's like, okay, fine. All I want to do is computers anyway. So who cares about games? Uh, too and bad. that was that. And 7800 was dead. After that, you guys went and did Mac peripherals, right? You guys got out of that business completely? Yes. And we had, interestingly, so the Macintosh was introduced in February of 84. All right. So we immediately started working on Macintosh stuff. Oh, cool. So right away, we, and that's, I can tell you that story too. Right away, we started working on Macintosh stuff and Macintosh software and actually we're looking at building Macintosh clone. Wow. So we were thinking about back to reverse engineering, right? We're reverse engineering the Macintosh ROMs so we can build our own clone. And so we were, we were thinking of that right away. So software and hardware for Macintosh. Um, and, but we're still bombing ahead on Atari and 7800 also, right? right. So we've got a lot, a lot going on. But then by end of 84, all the game stuff is gone, huge layoff, lots of people are gone, and you're left with this much smaller company that's focused on Macintosh. Well, and you were still there, right? So let's Oh, no, I got laid off. Oh, you know. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I got laid off. Yeah. So I went back to school, got my degree. Oh, that's yeah. cool. Sure. Good job. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. 
So if, yeah, if you want to, maybe we could do this again sometime and pick up the VCS stuff on and talk about the, the sure. rest that happened after that. Yes. Yeah. The, the whole VCS, how did we get started with VCS is, and I'll give you just a little hint of it because I did not realize it. One part of the story, I did not realize until I listened to one of your podcasts. Really? Oh, that's really. Because you, um, you talked about uh, Pac-Man, VCS Pac-Man. Oh, yes. Right. And that there was Pac-Man Day, and that it was released in early April of eighty-four of, of of eighty-two. Yes, that's right. Right, like April, beginning of April, April third, April fourth, something like that of of nineteen eighty-two. Within a week or two after that is when we first got called about doing VCS carts. Oh, and I had never put that together. <laughs> I knew I had been able to find that things were really bad at Atari, right? right which prompted them to call us and that whole phone call and how that all happened. That's the story I want to tell you. That's cool. But I never put it together with, Oh, that's right after Pac-Man came out and the massive disaster. I think they started to realize we're really screwed. You know, oh, they, they thought Pac-Man was going to be a huge hit and it, Turns out it's not going to, they can see it, I think, right away that it's not going to. Let's save that for next time. That'll be an awesome yeah. callback to the to that first episode of the season. So, yeah. <laughs> fantastic. You're telling me you're willing to do this again. Oh, sure. Hey, Jeff, what'd you think of that Steve Golson interview over the past two episodes? I thought there were some incredible revelations in those two episodes, Steve. It's stuff I hadn't heard before. I, what did I you think? Two big ones. In the first episode, it was really interesting to hear their perspective on why they won the lawsuit from Atari and how they, you know, became the right-hand uh, East Coast version of Atari development. The secret, also, their Atari's secret weapon, you mean? Their secret weapon. And then the development of Miss Pac-Man was really interesting, how they were able to just make a version for the 2600 and tell Atari what, how much... ROM needed to be in the cart, and then designed the 7800 as a stopgap, not as really a new system, a stopgap for the 2600. That's why Pokey isn't in it. Yeah, that and explains then, why it was kind of, they did, you know, he mentioned in there, like, how could they cut it down to not be as good as the 5200? I mean, right there, the Pokey is the answer. Right. They, they kind of left the Pokey out, so it gave the 5200 a little bit of advantage, even though but that, they didn't in, know what they in had. reality didn't matter. Yeah. Yeah, the Maria, the Maria graphics chip was so far superior. It was the next stage. You could see why guys like J Minor and stuff left because they were being, they weren't able to do anything they wanted to do. They had this, they had Manny Gerard and these guys in the way of them doing anything they wanted to do over on the West Coast. And the East Coast GCC didn't have that. They could, they were like the secret weapon that could design stuff and give free reign to do 70 cartridges between all the systems and build a 7800 and build arcade machines. It was almost as, as if Atari didn't understand what they had with their own engineers, let that whole thing dry up or just like, uh, or just treat them like crap, but let GCC do whatever they wanted. Isn't um, that always the way though? Like, yes, we've worked in organizations that have done very similar things where the internal team does really good work and then somehow they get maligned or sidelined or or just overworked or or continue doing support on things and external teams get the advantage of not having those that work to do when and all of a sudden be the, the power shifts yeah right 
when it should be the opposite, when the internal team that's done all that stuff should be given the break, the new team should come in. I'm not saying GCC should have done this because they were a different thing, but a new, if you're going to hire a new team, you bring them in to take over the crap work that the team is doing, the maintenance, the updates to things, whatever it is, and you give your team that's been kicking ass, you give them the new stuff. The problem is, right, they did right as the Pac-Man cartridge came out, that's not what Atari thought anymore. No, and that's that's the key. That's why we need to talk to Golson another time because I want to hear that story. Like, if we can get that Pac-Man story from him, then it will be a nice bookend to the first episode of the season, which was Atari's biggest mistake, which is about the Pac-Man cartridge. Yes, I 100% agree. Well, I take it back. It wasn't about the Pac-Man cartridge exactly. It was about releasing the Pac-Man cartridge at a time when people could get other sources of information than just their ads and catalogs. It also is that you know Atari had a lot of faith in the 8-bit hardware, which was great, and that was in the 5200. But the 5200, in its incarnation that was out there, wasn't going to sell anymore. It had been, even, it, even with brand new controllers and fixed, it was tainted by that time, just by bad press. And because the press was, Atari was no longer the darling, they were competing with, with Mattel and Coleco. So, well, and even player missile graphics had, had sort of run their course, too. I mean, five sprites i think or six sprites is not enough when um, um, it's also when the way that the the only four colors maximum of four colors per line too where well you could get more if you were creative you could you could make an atari big game as good or better than a commodore 64 game but the c64 had a little bit newer hardware and that's what they're competing with at that point right and the nes right they had some the, you know they had sprites that were 24 by 16 with a couple colors on them in the multicolor mode so and that was on this that was on the Commodore 64 and just those two colors on a sprite and not having to use another sprite to overlay gave two colors on a sprite makes it look like it's a multicolor sprite because it is right <laughs> so yeah. by definition by definition, it's a multicolor sprite. You don't need three. I mean, if you wonder why, you know, the 8-bit computer line didn't get a Maria upgrade, I wonder if that was in the cards at some point. It that would have been probably cool. could have. It probably would have if they didn't just dump and sell the whole thing, which they didn't yeah. have to do. That's too bad. So what did you think of the other parts of the interview? Like, like I, I thought that um, Golson saying they were basically paid $50,000 a month to go away and they decided not to go away. That was pretty cool. Yeah, that was awesome. It's like, hey, we're going to make some stuff. It was interesting because even with that $50,000, they still got royalties on what they made. I bet Tramiel would say when he saw that contract, even though the contract was with Atari, it wasn't with Tramiel. He saw that and he said, oh, you got your $50,000. I'm not giving you royalties on the $1,700. I want to sell for 50 bucks. <laughs> and that's why it didn't come out. So the big question though, Jeff, what about those newsletters? Oh my God. Where are those newsletters? Does he, oh, he has them, right? Yes. We I mean, need those newsletters. Those newsletters, I have to say, those newsletters would be amazing to go through and see the news. I called it alternative history and he didn't agree with that, but what I meant was, is like history from another angle. From another angle, from another, another side. Yeah, another source that's not engineering notes or or people who are sitting in the Atari offices getting, you know, one skewed view of reality. It'd be interesting to see another skewed view of reality from another party to see what was happening. I just think those those notes would be amazing to see. But yeah, I hope to talk to Golson about both of those things, the, the VCS, them starting to make VCS games and also uh, those newsletters. But how about the other thing? I didn't know they made 8-bit games. Yeah, I wonder which one. I think I, my guess would be 
Robotron. Some of the games they made for the 5200 and the 700 could have been like Robotron. Dig, they didn't do Dig. I don't know, Dig Dug could have been. I don't know. I have to look at the. Well, I know they worked on Atari Lab because the woman he mentioned in her bio worked on Atari Lab. So there's other that, stuff that they that worked would on be there what too. They would have done so that would be some of that software, Atari Lab. Yeah, and um, I do wonder if we could get that list of what they worked on, you know, to see exactly what they built. I think there's a lot of interesting things um, that could come of GCC. I don't know why I'm so interested in GCC. Like, why do I care more about GCC than about Atari? For some reason. GCC is always stuck in my well, because mind. Because they're, they're the missing link. They're the missing link. They, they're the thing that could have made... They live in the vertical blank, basically, don't they? Yes, they do. They're what could have been. They, I mean, if, you, if, you, if they had so much potential, when you, when you think about what they actually did, the games that they were making, uh, the arcade games. I mean, they made Super Missile Attack, which Atari basically bought from them to put it out off the market for $50,000 a month for two or three years. And then they actually designed Miss Pac-Man, the most popular arcade game ever, I think, at least at the time. Um, and actually, Golson's hardware sits in, you know, the most popular arcade game ever made, which is pretty amazing. Besides yes, Street Fighter Two, right? Like, I don't know yeah. how many Street Fighter Two games of, of the gold of the golden of age. the golden age of the gold. I, I don't know either. So on um, Atari Mania, the only GCC listed cartridge they have is Kangaroo. I did find the person who programmed that um, programmed a game called Shadowhawk One for Horizon Simulations by it was James Letterman or Lederman, but he also programmed Kangaroo. Kangaroo came out on the Atari 8-bit in the APX first. Well, it's a licensed game. Yeah, Steve. But that makes sense that they just released it, came it on out a, in the APX first. This is what the weirdest thing about Kangaroo is that it came out APX first. Okay. And then the cartridge was put out. But again, I mean, the point is, is this is interesting to me because GCC lives in the vertical blank. That's what could have been. You know, they were on that trajectory to make all those great arcade games, but they only ever really made two. One of them too expensive, which was Quantum. But then the other thing is, you know, they really found their uh, their groove making cartridges. You know, for the twenty six hundred. Oh, of course, obviously. they did a ton of those. Hey everybody, it's Bill from Atari Bytes. Every week on my show I play a great old game, then I read an original short story I wrote inspired by that game. Loosely inspired. Okay, often completely different. Sometimes not even based on any sort of reality. In contrast, on Into the Vertical Blank, which you're listening to right now, you get real stories about real people and what these games mean to them. So keep listening. Anyway, that was a good, uh, good couple episodes for interview. I mean, we're starting to wind down the first half of the season. Where this this is going to be episode forty nine. I was going to mention technically fifty, but I removed one of our episodes out of the the um, out of the running for right I know. for some technical reasons. Um, so we're still at forty nine, which means the next episode is episode fifty. What are you gonna do for our fiftieth episode celebrations? I don't know. It's gonna. I think. I think the fiftieth episode is gonna end season three, part one. We'll go on hiatus so we can work on some other projects for a little while. And I'm not sure yet. I don't know what kind of what we should do. I want um, to take the games that Atari officially released for all of their systems, including the Jaguar and Lynx. 8-bit, and these are only Atari okay. releases, and wait, and 2600, 5200, and make yes. a top 50. Top 50. I say that that's too, well, no, it's not too many, because it's 50, isn't it? 
It's just top okay. 50 of between all the systems. So it's like 50 right. total. 50 so total. So we will work on the top 50. So we, here's what we do. We both make our lists and then we score them one point to 50, depending on where they are on the list. So 50 is one and one is 50. Now is it games that only Atari made or can it be any game for the system? This is games that Atari made, okay? Atari Came out on the Atari game. label, okay. Came out on the Atari label, exactly. Okay. Top, that's, there's I mean, some... there, may, there might only be 50. <laughs> no, no, there's, there's <laughs> they more. They can be I licensed mean... games. They can be licensed games yeah, that Atari to... put out, but Atari had to put them out. On the car, I'm talking about cartridges and discs and tapes. Yes. And if, if you look up Atari UK on Atari Mania, you'll find a whole bunch of games you've never heard of. That's fine. And also, it can be APX games. It can be anything that came out on an Atari label, including coin ops. Sure. Yeah, including coin ops, of course. So the top 50 things that Atari produced, we'll both make a list, we'll score it down, and then we will, we will put them together. It's not going to be a surprise. And then we'll figure out the scoring, which at the top 50 score getters get on our top 50 list. Exactly. Okay. That sounds good. Cool. Steve Golson responded to our second podcast and wrote an email that said this. I misspoke about the VCS Pac-Man versus Miss Pac-Man. I said that the ROM sizes were 2K and 4K, but actually, I think Pac-Man was 4K and Miss Pac-Man was 8K. The main point I got across correctly, which is GCC used two times the ROM size and it shows in the quality of the results. Then he went on. You mentioned at the end something about the 7800 had no pokey, and wow, that reminded me. There's a whole topic I forgot to talk about. Sound! Anyway, hopefully we'll get to talk to him again about more of this stuff, because obviously Steve Golson is an amazing storyteller and a fountain of information. All right, well, we're going to leave with uh, what we came in with and what's been played several times. One of my new favorite songs ever. It's Decathlon by Tony Longworth. So, here we go.
next frame calculated, prepare to write new data, V-blank ending. An 8-Bit Rocket Studios production.